in conjunction with our summer outreaches this summer, we are beginning a new series, a new series called Encounters with Jesus. So we're moving from Ecclesiastes all the way up to the Gospels, something a little more familiar, maybe a little bit more graspable, but hopefully equally challenging. That is our hope. Because we've been spending a lot of time thinking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus Christ brought. Ecclesiastes reminds us that only if we invest in the kingdom of Jesus Christ are we going to have lives that ultimately matter. That is the only way. You guys are all looking for the passage. We haven't told you yet. All right. <laughs> Turn to Luke 7. No one's paying attention. They're all... <laughs> All right. All right. We're all at Luke 7. Now we can all pay attention. It's the intro time. Patience. All right. <laughs> all right. Um, so we've been talking about the kingdom of God. Now we want to focus on the king of this kingdom, Jesus Christ. Our goal as Christians is to be followers of Jesus Christ, people who are in love with Jesus, who know Jesus well. And so the hope is that during this series, we might see how Jesus actually interacts and encounters various people in the Bible. People of all different uh, men and women, powerful people, weak people, suffering people. So that we can kind of fall in love with Jesus once again. Or maybe fall in love with Jesus for the first time. We can remember how valuable our, our Savior really is. And the goal would be ultimately that we would become like Jesus Christ. That we would love as he loves. We would do what he does. And so this week we're looking at the story of the centurion this Roman centurion that Jesus meets. And through this story, we're going to ask three questions about Jesus and finally have the answer to them. First of all, are you worthy of Jesus Christ? Are you worthy? Do you know Jesus, the true Jesus? And how will that true Jesus receive you when you come to him? My ultimate hope would be that we see that Jesus Christ receives those who are unworthy, who the world would deem worthless, with open arms, and that we would present that kind of Christ to the world. Not someone that you have to work for, but a Jesus that just accepts you and pays for your sins. All right, so let's look at that Luke 7. We're looking at 1 through 10. After he had finished all of these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When, they had been sent, when those who had been sent returned to the house, 
they found the servant well. All right. So just for a little bit of context, not much, this is coming right after Luke's version of kind of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus gives all of these laws, all of these requirements of man, and then he heads out with this crowd of people he just taught into Capernaum. And as this crowd is entering the city, another crowd meets him, this crowd of Jewish elders. And the Jewish elders have been sent by a centurion asking Jesus to come heal the centurion servant on their behalf. Now, before, before we jump in, uh, just to answer a few questions you might have. Uh, what is a centurion? Right. No one is expecting you guys to know your, your ancient Roman military. Uh, that's, that's fine. We can tell you. Oh, Tom knows. All right. <laughs> you want to come, come up and tell Tom? <laughs> uh, so a centurion, he is an officer in the Roman army. He's in charge of at least 100 foot soldiers of the Roman army. Now we have to remember that at this time, Israel was occupied by Rome. They were under their control. And so Rome is there to make sure that Israel stays in line, that they keep the peace, that they keep paying their taxes, that sort of stuff. And so the centurion, he'd be wealthy, he would be powerful, and he would be influential in this culture. But he would also be an unwelcome guest here. Right? He is a non-Israelite. He is an invader. He is an enemy of Israel as a nation. And so the question is, why do these, el does these Jewish elders, why do they come on behalf of the centurion? Look at verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come to heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation. He is the one who built our synagogue. The Jewish leaders have decided, based upon this man's good deeds, that he is worthy of Jesus coming and healing his servant. He is worthy of Jesus. Now that brings a question, are you worthy of Jesus? Are we worthy of Jesus? When we come, when we come to him, should he listen to us? What is our relationship there? Well, it depends on what rules we're trying to follow, right? What are the rules to be worthy before God? According to the Jews, it is religious worthiness that you would kind of keep your religious rituals. You'd be a good supporter of the church, maybe have faithful attendance. That is what it's all about. All right, so let's step back and imagine what is going through Jesus' head as he hears about this centurion as it's presented to him. This is hypothetical. It's not in the text. All right. So, is Jesus impressed with this centurion who is rich and who is powerful? Well, Jesus might say, well, I'm, I'm pretty powerful. This is the omnipotent Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He has legions of angels upon angels at his beck and call. He is the ruler of all things. He's the commander of the Lord's army. We think of wealth uh, we have those passages about a thousand cattle on a thousand hills are his. That everything he created is his because he created it. He is rich and he is powerful. Or we'd say that he loves the nation of Israel. This centurion, he loves Israel. What about Jesus? 
Jesus loves Israel. Jesus created Israel. Jesus is about to die on the cross for the nation of Israel because he loves those people so much. We take that one step further. Jesus is love. He is not just loving. We think, that, oh, that God is love. That just means God is loving. Jesus is loving. No, he, he is the concept of love embodied. There would be no love without him. We also say that Jesus is true Israel. He is the people of God in one chosen person. Jesus loves Israel. He loves that nation. He represents that nation. He's going to die for that nation. I would say that, okay, the centurion, he built the synagogue. How might Jesus respond to that? Jesus is the temple. He is the temple. And when you go to the synagogue, when you read the, the scrolls, they open up the scriptures. Jesus wrote those by the Spirit. And all of those scrolls are about Jesus Christ. We see that in Luke 24. And all of the scriptures are about Jesus. And all of the worship that happens in the synagogue is worshiping Jesus. All right. So the question is, how impressed is Jesus with this guy? How beholden is he to, to be at his beck and call? We see if we really know who Jesus is, how silly it is to think that, that we can expect anything from him, that we can demand anything from him. Jesus is infinitely worthy. He is infinitely valuable because he is the incarnate God. And so when we think about what Jesus owes us, what we are worthy of, we've got it all backwards. We're acting really ridiculous, actually. Jesus Christ is the most valuable. Now, what is most valuable for these Jewish leaders? They clearly don't think Jesus is the most valuable person here. It seems like what is most valuable to them is wealth and power. That's why they're fighting for this centurion. He should, they're essentially the enemies of each other, but they want to get on this centurion's good side because he has power and influence in the kingdom, in the earthly kingdom. And so they're coming, fighting for this man. We have to be careful of our ulterior motives for what we're really seeking, what we're really worshiping, what we really see as valuable in this world. We can be saying the right things, wanting to see people healed, wanting to see great things happen, but we ultimately want it for our own gain, for our own purposes. That is what these Jewish elders are looking for. And sometimes we can be like this. We can be like that. We can have these ulterior motives. Sometimes see this when we talk about who we would want to see in our church. Who do we want to invite to Fair Hill? And we come up with a list of all of the smartest, wealthiest, most attractive friends of ours and think, oh, that would be great. That's what Fair Hill really needs. We need those people as part of the church. I think that betrays the fact that we want this church to give us a sort of kind of clout. That we want to have a place here that makes us feel good about ourselves that we are a member of something that's, that's good and that is cool, that is valuable according to the world's eyes. When Jesus calls people, he usually calls the weakest, the poorest, the people who are suffering the most. 
That's who Jesus wants as part of his church. That's who actually needs to hear the gospel and is ready to hear the gospel because they have real needs. They're not tied to this world in the same way. Be careful about those sorts of things. All right, or we might act like the Jewish elders by kind of prioritizing this list of spiritual accomplishments. Um, and we justify ourselves to each other. I found myself doing that even this week, where I was like saying that, I was like defending myself, that, oh no, I like, I like work hard enough, I do enough. When I, I don't need to be worthy in other people's eyes, I'm worthy in Christ. And I think sometimes we can end up justifying ourselves to each other. A lot of the times there's long conversations about how, how you, you weren't at church and why you weren't at church and all the reasons for that. Now, that, sometimes that's good. That's nice if you're like, don't want me to feel like you hate church and are, are ignoring me. I like that. But sometimes it's, it's to upkeep this kind of spiritual resume. You want to make sure that, that I know that you're, you're doing good spiritually. You're okay with Jesus. Like, you don't need to do that. We're not, we're not performing here. This is not a spiritual performance. We're just coming to Christ, receiving him. And so, we can be okay with being less than perfect Christians. That's the whole point, is that we are less than perfect people. You shouldn't need to be scared to pray out loud like it's a test to see how eloquent you are. You don't need to be scared to not know the answer at a Bible study. Those kind of things are silly, but they, they trip us up. They make us think that maybe we're not good enough Christians. No one is a good enough Christian. No one is a good enough Christian. That's the whole point. That no one could possibly be a good enough Christian. That's why Jesus Christ is worthy on our behalf. We need to remember those things. They were all on an equal playing field. We are equally in need of grace. And with that in mind, we can then present that to other people as well. Just as we are equally unworthy of, for Christ as everyone else, we can approach people who are weak, who are suffering, who are sinning, and give them the gospel without all these strings attached. We give them a simple gospel that they have not deserved any of what Christ offers them. They do not deserve salvation. They did not deserve eternal life, but Jesus Christ gives it to them freely. That is what we proclaim. All right. That brings us to our second question. How do we come to know Jesus like this? How, how do we know Jesus? The Jewish elders, they clearly didn't understand who Jesus was. They didn't know him properly, which is why they have this ridiculous conversation about how worthy this man is to come and heal. The centurion, though, he seems to know Jesus. He understands who Jesus is. Oddly enough, this Gentile kind of warrior character understands who Jesus is. And he sees that Jesus is a military man like himself. He's a fellow officer in the Lord's army. Look at verse 6. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you under my roof. Therefore, I didn't presume to come to you, but just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with, ruler, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. 
And to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. All right, first notice this, this little phrase, and Jesus went with them. Jesus goes anyway. Jesus could have been all high and mighty that, no, you, he's not worthy to have me come. Jesus isn't prideful like that. No, he goes. He goes with these men who clearly don't understand, who are foolish. And that's where Jesus is at core gracious. He is gracious with us. He is gracious with these men. They have no idea who he is, but, but here he is coming, the God to help man. And when he gets there, what does the centurion reveal that he knows about Jesus? He seems to know that Jesus is kind of a, a spiritual officer, a leader in the army of God. He sees that Jesus is a man set under authority. Which makes sense because this is a man who is also set under authority. He's been given orders and he's had to execute them. He has lived as a military officer. And he knows what that life looks like. And it seems like he's been observing Jesus. Been watching Jesus' life. And he sees that Jesus isn't fighting for himself. He's not a civilian. He's not just living for the day-to-day. -day. He's clearly a man on mission. A mission from God the Father with authority set under him. That's what explains Jesus' life. That is why he goes around homeless, healing people, serving people. He doesn't do it for the wealth, for the honor, for the glory of it. He does it to honor his father. To honor his commanding officer. And the centurion sees that Jesus, as a result, has a certain authority as well. That's how, that's how authority works in the kingdom of God. That the more you submit to God, actually the more authority and power you have. You're given a position of, of rule and a position of service. And Jesus has completely committed to serving the Father and has an authority as a result. So that when he says go, that people go. He says come, they come. When he says be healed, people are healed. Because he is in submission to the Father and filled with the authority of the Father. Now do we see how remarkable it is that this centurion has understood this about Jesus? That the Jewish leaders who are expecting their Messiah, they didn't see it. But this man has simply observed Jesus' life and come to understand him this fully. I think that calls us to something very, very basic that we ought to be people who observe Jesus and understand Jesus. I think we tend to have a, a theological category of Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross for us, that he, he paid for our sins, but it sometimes stops there. So if you, can you try to anticipate, well, how would Jesus react in this situation? How does he treat this kind of person? We tend to let our cultural biases dictate that. Instead of knowing Jesus really well from the Bible and actually following Jesus' example. Because sometimes Jesus does crazy things. He doesn't follow the cultural rules. He's brutally honest. He's not scared to, to stir the waters. He goes into the temples and starts flipping over tables. Those are the things that 
when we understand that Jesus, we're going to be a radical people and a different people and a people who people actually do ask, like, what, what is wrong with you? Who are you? Who are you representing? That is what we're called to do, just as the centurion did, to observe Jesus and come to know Jesus in a new way. Because the point is that this life is about Jesus. All of history is about Jesus. And when the kingdom comes, Jesus will be the, the ruler, the authority. And your time will not be wasted if you spend your time these days coming to know Jesus well. All of life is about him. We have to know him, him really, really well. All right, and secondly, second thing we learn about Jesus is that in his authority, we are called to submit to him humbly. To recognize that we have nothing to bring. We have no offering to take to him. We come to him with empty arms, empty hands, giving ourselves completely to submission in him. Now, what might that look like? To recognize that you have nothing to offer Jesus. You're going to be remarkably gracious to other people. You're going to be gracious to those who are seemingly worthless. Because you were worthless and Jesus Christ came to you. You were worthless and he gave you himself. My hope is that we would look at people and not see kind of all of this external stuff. We would see people who don't deserve to have Jesus. But who Jesus would love to save. Then another part of that would be that my hope is that we wouldn't be scared of other Christians. Scared that we don't stack up, that we're not good enough Christians, that we don't believe enough, we don't know enough, we don't trust enough. Those are silly categories we're working with. We're all equally in need of grace. Now there is different levels of maturity, that's right. But no one's better than anyone else in this kingdom. There's Jesus and there's all of us. That's actually a beautiful thing that will keep us unified, keep us focused on Christ, keep us from competing with one another, which is silliness. It's something that the kingdom, the kingdom totally rules out. All right. So we come to know Jesus as the one we, we submit to. The one that we just... We just humbly go to him in complete submission. All right. But when we go to Jesus with complete submission, with nothing in our hands, how is Jesus going to receive us? I think that's the scary thing. That if you go to Jesus with absolutely nothing, is he going to receive you well? Do you have authority? Do you have, is he going to be listened to when you cry out to him? How is he going to respond? Well, how does he receive the centurion here? This centurion who gives him nothing, who says that he is totally worthless, that you're not, I'm not worthy to have you even come into my house. That's how the centurion receives Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus marvels that someone would be so humble when they have so much authority. He marvels that this super powerful guy would come to Jesus in complete powerlessness. 
That is what impresses Jesus. For people to recognize that before him, they have nothing to offer. And Jesus is, Jesus is really gracious with those kind of people. He loves to heal those kind of people, to save those people. Because they have recognized what is really true. That they are unworthy before Christ, but that Christ is gracious. And so Jesus, I think we can forget the part that Jesus then heals this guy, right? Verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. I was convicted uh, maybe like a month ago with Jen, actually. <laughs> we, were, we were reading this story, and, and Jesus raised someone from the dead, and she was like so excited. Like, whoa, he raised him from the dead. Like, yeah, Jesus does that. I think we take that for granted. Like, oh, yeah, Jesus just does that kind of stuff. Like, no, no one does that. Like, <laughs> that's a big deal. <laughs> that's how we should all be. Like, oh, yeah, that doesn't really happen. This is proof that God is not just, Jesus is not just some guy to follow. He's not just some goofy example. He is God. Amen. He is a savior. Amen. He has power. And so when we say that, that Jesus is gracious with us, he's not just a cuddly stuffed animal. That, like, it's just kind of like, oh, he's nice to have. No, he's, he's powerful. Right. He's powerful to save us, to cleanse us from our sins, to resurrect from the dead. We don't just want warm, fuzzy Jesus. We want a powerful Jesus who can save us. And that is the Jesus that, that comes to us. That is the Jesus that the Bible reveals to us. So we have a gracious God who receives us out of his mere good pleasure. He just enjoys saving people. That's the only reason anyone is saved. And he is powerful enough to do it. Now that is a blessing. All right, so where does, where does that leave us? That leaves us with coming to Jesus in sheer faith, knowing that we have nothing to offer, that he, can, he alone can save us from sin and death, from the misery of this life. Jesus gets to be the worthy one. All right, you don't need to be worthy. Jesus is worthy. He is worthy in our behalf. When he died on the cross, he became the unworthy one, gave us his worthiness. That is why we can come before God. Because we have worth that is not of ourselves, it is of Christ. We're not worthy of Jesus, but we are worthy in Jesus. Worthy to be called children of God. Worthy to be cleansed from our sins. Worthy to be decreed righteousness, righteous in God's sight. That is our worth. That is our value. And when we come to Jesus like that, in, in just sheer humility... He also gives us his authority and his power. Now, it's going to be a little different. It's going to be very different, yes, than the power of Jesus Christ. But he gives us power and authority. That's why this, this soldier analogy really works for the Christian life. That we don't gain glory or authority or worthiness from ourselves. We receive it down from our commanding officer. He gives us our authority and our power because we are in submission to him. And then he calls us to use that glory and that power and that authority to help other people who don't deserve it. That is the mission that we are called to. We are called to bring the gospel that we have received, the love that we have received, the grace that we have received to other people who do not deserve it, 
just as we don't deserve it. All right. Now, what is this sermon? This sermon is just the gospel. Just the basic gospel. Now, for some of you, that might be boring. Not Carlton. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But it, it, that might be boring. It might seem like the same old gospel once again. We know this. My encouragement would be that other people don't know this. There are people who don't know this truth. There are people who are still trying every day to be good enough to be received by God. There are people who are lost in the darkness of sin and are just kind of wandering along, have no idea where they're going. They know it's not somewhere good, but they have nowhere else to go. Those are people at the Cecil County Fair. Those people are at your jobs, they're at your schools, they're in your neighborhoods. And we may think that this is old news. This is old hat. No, this is eternal salvation for these people. Without it, they have nowhere else to go. And the hope is that when we bring this gospel message to these people, it's going to become new to us as well. That we'll see that this really is the best news that has ever happened.